You have heard the expression, the bell of the ball. Well, let's coin a new one, the bell of it all. Bell of Broadway, bell of television, bell of motion pictures, bell of animation, bell of recordings, bell of business, bell of children's books, bell of motherhood, bell of Dak's heart. That's Kristen Bell, of course. Kristen Bell, for the entire hour. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell. And this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. Oh, 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 oh. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Kristen Bell grew up in Huntington Woods, Michigan, not far from Detroit. Her parents divorced when she was two, but in the process she gained step-siblings and an enlarged family. She attended public and Catholic schools, discovering a love for musical productions. Bell eventually moved to New York City to attend NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, and just prior to graduating, she took roles on Broadway before moving to Los Angeles. Subsequently, she would become identified with such vehicles as Veronica Mars, Gossip Girl, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Frozen and Frozen 2, Bad Moms, The Good Place, and Encore. With her husband, Dak Shepard, she has entered into, well, a business, Hello Bello, a company that seeks ways to make baby items affordable. Her latest venture is a book for children and adults entitled The World Needs More Purple People. Belle is vivacious, sincere, candid, and extremely warm. Okay, can I just say something crazy? I love crazy. All my life has been a series of doors in my face, and then suddenly I bump into you. I was thinking the same thing, because like, I've been searching my whole life to find my own place And maybe it's the party talking or the chocolate fondue <laughs> But with you But with you I found my place I see your face And, and it's, it's nothing, nothing like I've ever known before Love is an open Say something crazy. Will you marry me? Can I say something even crazier? Yes. Kristen Bell, welcome to Watching America. It's a delight to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, when I think of you, there are certain word associations that come to mind beyond the obvious, like talent, generosity, kindness. Um, but certainly one of the key phrases or terms that comes to mind is family. Uh, and first of all, I want to, you know, just doff my hat to your grandmother, who evidently had 12 children. Can you believe that? I, I still, I think about it and it's so hard for me to imagine. I can, I'm hanging on by a thread, raising two. <laughs> yes. I cannot imagine what 12 is like. And you know, I, I it's funny because our family always talks about how um, we think that my grandmother might have actually invented Costco because <laughs> because my grandfather used to have to go to uh, like the local store, the local mart and ask them to buy in bulk. So he would bring home these, you know, 25 <laughs> or 50 pound bags of powdered milk because yes. they needed everything in bulk. He would go home and he would take a huge garbage can, like a clean garbage can, a large one. And he would pour the powdered milk in there, add a lot of water, and then he would add a paddle attachment to his drill oh my to gosh. make the milk for the week. And then my grandmother and he would pour it into uh, different milk containers and just put, you know, a whole shelf was devoted to all of the children that were drinking milk. I mean, it's nuts. It, it, how and they how didn't, innovative and they resourceful. Exactly. And they couldn't fit everyone in a car. Think about that. What yeah. if you literally couldn't go anywhere? Because you had too many children. 
My gosh. Did you have the good fortune of knowing your grandmother? I mean, did you have some years with her before? I mean, I don't want to presume. Maybe she's still with us, so forgive me. She is still with us. She is still with us. And yes, they were, it's interesting, they were my father's parents. They were incredibly involved in raising most of the grandkids. They were the grandparents that you sort of hear about in storybooks where the kids go over to grandma's two days a week or, you know, one person is working full time and grandma watches the baby every weekend. Like she was, she was, there's, I think there's about 57 of us cousins. uh, And then there's a a handful that are uh, by marriage. And then now there's a lot of uh, great grandkids, but they were incredibly involved and they're both still alive. uh, And she has, you know, some onset Alzheimer's right now, which is a bummer, but she's hanging in there. And, you know, the sweetest, thing um happened the other day some of my cousins because she was so involved in raising all of us as babies she's raised a hundred babies wow they bought her a real live baby doll one of the ones that you can get now that um that are that are sort of heavy and they look very real and they they sort of freak you out at first glance (laughs) but they they got one for my grandmother and they videotaped her receiving it and she there were she's in and out of understanding where she is and who we are but yes, her face yeah. lit up oh, and good. she was absolutely overjoyed and she just immediately started cradling it uh, and asking when we should feed it i mean it was just it was such a sweet thing for my cousins absolutely now, your immediate family was comprised of obviously a mummy and a daddy and three girls of which you were the youngest Yes. Well, and it's sort of, my immediate family is wider than it seems because my parents were divorced when I was little, I think before I was two. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's funny. I don't I don't really identify easily with the idea of a broken home or or feeling any animosity towards my parents. I think they raised me in such a way where I understood that I wanted them to be happy because then they could uh, make our family happy and be happy in the world. So my fa- they both got remarried and my father married uh, my stepmom, who I've always called mom, mm. uh, and she had two older sisters. So I was an only child in my birth mother's house and in my father and stepmother's, I had two older sisters. Well, this is no false flattery. It's complete sincerity. Otherwise, I wouldn't say it. You are, without a doubt, one of the most positive personalities that one can encounter uh, in any realm, not just in celebrity, but uh, in in terms of just in the parlance of going across one day, we turn on the television. I've never heard anything negative come out of you. That's not to say you haven't had challenges. You've, You've been very candid and open about various challenges at times in your life. But that innate positivity, where did that come from? Gosh, I um first of all, thank you. That's about the highest compliment I could receive because it means so much to me to uh, not just do it for myself, but to be an example of uh, the fact that it can be done, that mm. you can choose to change the lens of your glasses and it's up to you uh, to look at a situation differently. Um, I think part of it is something I can't articulate that's just in my bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of it is practice. You know, I do, I've been very honest about my struggles with anxiety and depression. And, uh, you know, anxiety and depression exhibits itself in many different ways for many different people. Mine is a stagnancy and an irritability. And I have, I guess, the feeling inside my bones, I've known that when I get that way, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm just, I know that's not the natural me. There's like a tiny fighter inside of me going, no, no, this, these are, this is not how you feel. This is not how you, and I'm very grateful for that voice. And I wish I could tell you where it came from. Um, but it's also practice, you know, experiential growth for me of understanding if I walk into a situation and I see the positive, I'm generally happier. I have greater, uh, better outcomes in my life. It just yields better results for me. So I'm a, a person who likes data and math. And I'm like, okay, well, if I look at situations from a positive, I get great results. And if I look at them from a negative, I get eh results. Like there's no question how I'm going to operate. What you describe, I think, is is what I would consider a, an authentic, a real positiveness, because 
It's positive to recognize the downside. It's positive to recognize reality. One of the things I was astonished, delightfully astonished, was the account I uh, heard of your daughter, I think at the age of five, coming to you saying, am I going to die? And to which mm. you and your wonderful husband, Dax, said, uh, yes, which was a very candid, honest answer. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, that seems to be part of the recipe of the dynamics of your family. And yet you were forthcoming in the fact that even with what we've been going through by people being basically enclosed in their homes for weeks on end, that you and your husband went through three and a half days of hostility, anger, uh, and then you worked <laughs> it out. Um, yeah. It is so refreshing to hear somebody with your status, your authority, your power, your influence say these things because... I need not tell you, Kristen, you already know, you give hope to so many who think, oh my gosh, if this wonderful woman can go through these things, then perhaps I'm not that odd after all. I mean, look, I will tell you my deepest, darkest secrets, if I, most embarrassing moments, if I feel it could give someone else hope. I, I really, there is no point to living on planet earth unless you are spreading a little bit of joy mm -hmm. it's just a better experience and i'm i'm not talking in a hippy dippy way i'm talking about the data the actual math of it you will be happier happier is a better feeling to have than sadness and pessimism it's it feels better in your body um and i've sort of my mantra is to um uh, encourage happiness and reduce suffering wherever I can. And, and I guess I realized, and again, it's, it's really coming at it from a scientific point of view. It's not, some of it's feeling, but most of it is, wait a minute, I talked publicly about a fight with my husband yes. and I received so many letters and uh, interactions online of people saying, thank you, thank you for talking about that. It made me feel this way, it made me feel better. I talked publicly about my anxiety and depression and that, the amount of interaction I got off of talk of admitting that I experienced these dark days was astronomical. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the clue. This is how I should be operating. I should be talking about my humanity more than anyone yes. else. And I also, yes. I've, I've learned this from my husband and I'm very grateful because we are, I'm telling you, we are polar opposites. We disagree about just about everything. <laughs> but he's wonderful in that he just, shame, he works to keep it as far away from himself as possible. Yes. Um, and that it has a lot to do with his practice of sobriety. But he also just believes honesty and authenticity should be pillars. And so when we did, when we talked to our, our when our daughter asked us if she was going to die, we made a quick little beat of eye contact mm -hmm. that said, are we going to come up with a fantastic story about the clouds right now? Or are we going to be honest? And or, or are we going to lie? What are we going to do? And I think we both just knew it. We said, no, she can, I know she can process more than we think she can. We don't need to shield her from honesty. I think that was sort of uh, a mistake I found in my early parenting was shielding my kids from real things. When they yes. ask about sex, I tell them what sex is. And to be yes. honest, they're either so bored or grossed out, two sentences in, they walk out of the room. Sure. I mean, it's like the yeah, easiest yeah. conversation to have with, with young kids because they just don't care enough when you're practical about it. But when you make things seem mysterious, like they can't know, well, I'm not going to talk to you about the fact of whether or not you're going to die or, or don't worry about sex. That's an adult thing. All of a sudden they get interested and there builds shame around talking about it. I just, yeah, all the hard topics we talk about in our household. Well, I like the phrase I've heard you use, the open kimono attitude that you and Dax mm -hmm. have both adopted. And uh, and it manifests itself in wond wondrous ways. One of the things that you said is that you've encouraged your children to, to write opinion pieces and you're five-year-old and you shared this with the world, and I'm so grateful, and I think every parent in, in a moment will be if they haven't heard it already. Uh, you said, you know, I, I want you to write about mom's reactions, being self-reflexive, talking about yourself. And then you shared openly that your little girl had written, my mom has bad reactions. Mm -hmm. And the evidence was she was as, as a person with a stern voice. She doesn't believe uh -huh. in me. And she has no uh -huh. patience. <laughs> now, it's yep. so heartwarming because I think every parent <laughs> on earth, if they have any sensibility, walks around with perpetual variations of guilt. And uh, it's, I mean, if you, as a supermom, as you are perceived, and I mean that in the most 
natural way, uh, can admit things like that. Oh, it gives hope to so many. It really does. Well, I mean, look, I'm a big believer in you got to everyone has to stop striving per, for perfection. Yes. It's comical. Yes. It's not it, no one can reach it. Throw it in the trash. It's over. It's canceled. Perfection is canceled. I've just canceled it. I mean, that was just to be clear for clarity. That was my seven year old. And that was a project from school. And I only clarify that because I don't want people to think that I've got, you know, Mensa children in the house. My children are very average. They're wonderful. They're opinionated, but they are very average. And I love them. Well, five Um, or seven. I'm impressed. Well, yes. And so they were given opinion pieces. And actually, I didn't choose that topic. I oh, would, really? They were supposed to write about, you know, they're, the the um, examples the teacher had given were like, you could write about your rock collection. And then you could say, this is my favorite rock because, and you give three pieces of evidence. Or you could do movies you've seen or whatever. And I said, so you pick a topic, you pick your opinion on the topic, and you choose three pieces of evidence. And she said, my topic is going to be your reactions to me. And I said, okay, write it down. And I said, what's your opinion on this topic? And she said, you have bad reactions. And I said, (laughs) okay, write it down. And then her, yeah, her evidence was, I have no patience. I don't believe in her. And I use a stern voice. And there was, you know, I was filled with so many emotions. There was part of me that was uh, angry at her. There was Mm. part of me that was embarrassed. There was part of me that thought it was very, very funny. And then the majority of me, I think, had to recognize if I really were to you know, take shame out of the situation, recognize it's a great opinion piece. It's a fabulous opinion yeah. piece. She, this is the way she feels. She wrote about it with clarity. And I, I said, great job. Uh, Dax has been very open about his struggles with uh, substance abuse, mainly drinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. on Tuesday nights, he had a practice. I don't know if he's been able to do it under the given circumstances we face now, but he would go to meetings on a Tuesday night. Part of mm-hmm. the rubric, the the whole issue of AA or other 12-step programs and self-help programs is to acknowledge things as they are. Do you think that some of your husband's experience, not that you're not an initiator of the same attitude, has spilled over in a very healthy way to the family? I would say 99% is due to him. Um, there are little things we find on our own as the girls in this family, but the vast majority of the honesty and authenticity Mm. and desire to, um, show things as they are has come from him that he has had a massive contribution to not just our family, but our friendship circle of questioning things. He is the best critical thinker I have ever met. And he's, you know, a bit of a contrarian, but but in a safe environment, that can lead to a lot of really great breakthroughs. And he questions everything. Oh, well, but did you do that because you um, were trying to be nice or did you do that for your ego? Did you, you know, he, I mean, honestly, and it's, it's, we have conversations all the time about is selflessness actually selfish because it makes you feel so good. I mean, deep convos. And I would attribute I would not be the person I am today without his critical thinking skills uh, and his AA uh, isms rubbing off on me. I mean, I almost think that the AA book should be taught in elementary school. It is just such, it's an incredible way to have clarity and honesty and happiness in your life. When you are Um, identifying your fears, when you are making amends to people, when you are finding ways to reduce shame, it's healing. And I I would attribute all of my current successes to my husband being involved. I mean, I met him and I was a really nice person, but it was not without his magic that I became who I am. So you set about with your good friend to write a book, the title of which is The World Needs More Purple People. What do you mean by that? You wrote this with Benjamin Hart. What is the premise? The premise is looking for sameness before you look for differences. Yes. Uh, To look at what unites us over what divides us. It's not ignoring what divides us. It's not ignoring differences, but it's looking for sameness first. So Benjamin Hart uh, also works on Hello Bello, the the diaper baby company that we have together. And Mm -hmm. he works there uh, as a as one of the leads because he was a social friend of mine and I just know he's a genius. I bring Benjamin Hart into almost every uh, business uh, experience I can, but I also spend a lot of social time with him because he's he's started out as my friend. And we were sitting around 
after a big family dinner and 10 kids are running around, we have four families, and we just started talking about the fact that we had had great fun debates at the table. But our kids were listening and we thought, huh, if they had only heard the debates, that would be the, and not why we are allowed to debate, which is because we see sameness, we see safeness, we have an environment where people can share different opinions safely. It would be the equivalent to trying to teach my seven-year-old multiplication. She doesn't know addition yet. I can't teach her multiplication. So we said we need to write a roadmap about social identity and looking for sameness before you look for differences. So let's identify five sort of pillar characteristics that no one can argue with. You can't find a person on the planet that could argue with them. So we have um, purple people laugh a lot. Purple people work super duper hard. I just challenge anyone to find someone on the planet who says those are bad character traits. Like it's terrible to laugh a lot and terrible to work hard. Nobody says that. So we tried to find inarguable things. And I mean, I'll let you take the metaphor for what it is. You know, purple, Mm -hmm. we say, is a magical color when red and blue come together, which I think is where this, this whole thing started because nothing gets done when we do not have a safe place for debate and critical thinking. And right now we don't have it. We do not have it. And we like to, we, we struggled a little bit, to be honest, in this book, To find a label that would draw kids in, you want a label that they'll run towards, right? That they'll want to be a part of. And and those labels exist everywhere. I'm a gymnast. I want to be a doctor. But they innately leave people out. So we were like, shoot, how do we come up with a label that doesn't leave, leave anyone out? So we created Purple Person. And what we like to say as our tagline is purple people come in every color. Oh, that's good. So that's sort of a way to say, yes, this is a label to run towards, but no, no one is rejected from this label. And our dedication is uh, to all purple people, whatever shade, we're glad you're here. Because we wanted to create a very welcoming community that hopefully will drive kids to identify what's purple in their life. I did something purple today and we want, I mean, I see this as a a big idea that I'd love to have spread. I want curriculum around it. I want teachers to be asking kids, what what was a purple experience you had today? How were you purple today? Um, Because it's a message about unity and it's, and, and there's a, you know, there's a peaceful protest page in the book. This is not a book that's too hippy dippy about just being kind. These are practical steps that kids can take. And one of them is that if you do, if you see a problem, which you will, use your voice. Don't you don't lose your voice and there's a cute page we have that Daniel Weissman our illustrator did an amazing job drawing where we say purple work is the kind of work that's done together to change something that needs changing. And we tried to use really simplistic language, obviously. And there's kids that are saying, "What do we want? More playgrounds. When do we want them now?" <laughs> so We tried to give practical examples, and to be honest, we wrote this as a children's book for a very specific reason, and the reason is a trick. Um, Because Ben's in marketing, and I I lie for a living, so we are tricksters. (laughs) Um, But if we wrote an adult book about this topic, who knows who would read it? If we write a children's book, then not only do we get the child demographic reading this and absorbing these steps to becoming purple. But if a child is reading a book, there's a high probability there is adult either reading it to them or nearby. So, so we hit a, two demographics. Case. It's a case of a child will lead them. 100%. Yes. And when I've read this to a couple kindergarten and first grade classes already via Zoom, and I give them this, I say it's a secret at the end of the book. I said, the secret is this is up to you because you're the most purple of all. So you have an obligation to remind your parents when they can be purple and talk about purpleness because it's up to you. We wrote this book for you. This is Watching America from WHRV. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest, delighted to say, is Kristen Bell. Her latest book is entitled The World Needs More Purple People. She also has a new animated series associated with Apple Corporation, 
called Central Park, and that will be launching very, very soon as well. Um, there's a bit of a, of a, of a challenge. Uh, I get it. But for some people, they might say, well, Kristen, tell us, how do we handle this? On the one hand, we are advocating, rightfully so, diversity in all realms, where we, in a sense, emphasize people's differences. And yet, at the same time, you're recognizing the need for us not to look at people's differences. As a parent, how do you handle that? Well, I, you know, I, I'm not going to say this is crystal clear in the book because we have a children's book. We have about 30 pages and we have to use uh, really simple language, right? Mm -hmm. But my idea behind this, the idea behind this book is not to ignore the differences in visuals. It's just to make them irrelevant. Good. It doesn't. So there's also a page. I'll, re, I'll read to you a page because it'll probably do a better job oh, yeah, of please. explaining it. Oh, I love this. This is great. Go ahead. So, um, so here's two pages. Um, being a purple person has nothing to do with what you look like. My teacher says purple people look all sorts of ways. They are big and small. They are old and young. Some wear cool coats. Some wear shorts with lots of pockets. And some wear funny hats. She says some purple people feel blue sometimes and red other times. And some purple people even have green hair. And in this illustration, you see... Um, uh, a super tall basketball player, you see a little girl, you see a skateboarder, you see uh, a boy that kind of looks like he has a sad look on his face, you see an angry girl, you see a, a punk rocker that has green hair spiking up. So what we, and they're all different colors, by the way, there's mm -hmm. every shade you could possibly imagine. What we tried to do is, is not just with the colors, the sizes, uh, but the outfits and the facial expressions point a spotlight on how irrelevant the visual is. So it's not to say you cannot recognize it, but there, there's a purple person that's angry right now. There's a purple person that has green hair. There are purple people that are every color of the rainbow. So, you know, it's a big concept to put in this book, but I don't think at my husband's an anthropologist and we have a lot of evolutionary talks in our household about, we recently actually had one with our kids where we were showing them some pictures of what's currently happening in America and the differences between uh, how black people and white people were being treated by the police. And they weren't too graphic, but they were obvious. And we asked them what they thought about them. And they said, well, it seems like they're treating the black people really unfairly because the white people are way angrier and the police aren't doing anything. We said, good observation. And Dax said, you know, evolutionarily, we are meant to look at uh, sameness as safeness and difference as danger. Because when we were living in tribes and someone came across a field, you didn't know them. You didn't know if they were a danger to your family. So all these things in our brain tell us that if someone has a visual difference, we should be scared. And every single day we have to work to combat that. We have to go against that because we don't need that evolutionary quality anymore. Kristen, you speak of your husband with uh, continuous favor and delight. If this is not too personal, uh, I'm a romantic, you've got to forgive me. But when did you know that you'd fallen in love with Dax? Hmm. Right. Well, I'll, just for transparency, he annoys me day in and day out. So though I speak <laughs> with him with the utmost respect, he's also an incredibly annoying husband, as I am sure I am an annoying wife. Um, you know, I knew very early on, but I think I knew with a, a younger brain because I think love means something different uh, in different age groups. And I also think that's okay. Love means something much more, uh, uh, much different when you're a teenager, much different when you're 20, once mm -hmm. when you're 30, 40, 50. But I fell in love with him when I was 27 years old. And it was because of the immense amount of debate that we were able to have and the, the, the amount of ideas he exposed me to while still being a safe place. Yes. So literally he introduced me to the idea of being a purple person because we were hanging out. There was a physical attraction. There was an emotional attraction. And yet somehow we disagreed on everything. And there, there was definitely a point where we had to go to therapy for a few months to figure out how to disagree fairly and constructively. But there was something about 
the growing of my brain that I became addicted to. And he was the only one that could provide that because he challenged me. Yeah, the intellectual engagement. Yes, it's crazy yes. because I I feel like I had never gotten that before. I had been, because I'm such an agreeable person or was more agreeable uh, prior to Dax, I surrounded myself with agreeability and I never knew how healthy and exciting challenges could be when done in the correct fashion. So all the other, you know, people that I've dated, we just agreed on everything and it was fun and lovely, but it wasn't Dax. Kristen, one of the things about your Dax is he seems to be the right kind of masculinity. What effect is that going to have on your girls? Wow. That's a great question. Well, I will say um, he, I believe he is almost the perfect type of masculinity. There's still learning for all of us to do. Um, but what the kind of masculinity he brings is um, everything you normally associate with that word plus an, an egregious amount of affection. Mm. So he is forthright. He will hold our hands when we walk cr across the street. He is a gentleman. He will stand up for us. But when we are at home, he is begging our girls for snuggle parties. He is kissing them all over their heads and their shoulders and their feet and their belly and everywhere. He wrestles with them. <laughs> he says, he he constantly reiterates to them. He says, do you know the best feeling on earth? And they say, yes, dad, it's when my tiny arms are around your neck. <laughs> so great. he, one thing that, that I think is beautiful about him that is this balance to having such an alpha around, because he is an alpha. Mm-hmm. Um, is he's, he was raised by a single woman. He was raised by his mom. Yes. And she's incredibly affectionate. And it transferred to him in a way that I will forever be grateful for because this man, if he doesn't get physical affection, and by physical affection, I mean hand-holding, yes. snuggling. Yes. If we're sitting at the dinner table, there's an arm around someone. There's a hand on someone's knee. If we're on the couch, we are in a pile Um he he will wither without that, and yes. I and he and he um, leads with it too. He he will tell people like I need physical affection. He hugs and kisses his male friends, his female friends, anybody who he sees. He's very affectionate, and I think that's the wonderful part about Dax's alpha masculinity is it's balanced by all of this affection. Well, let me ask you about your femininity uh, as a woman. Uh, and I, I'm so delighted with the things I hear you saying about your husband. I'm a very demonstrative daddy myself. I bite my son's cheeks. I started it when they were babies. I mean, gently. You got them. to. You and, got to. Yeah. And I'm, I see no reason to stop. So I do it now. And they're in, you know, one of them's in his 30s. Um, <laughs> but as far as being a woman, I believe uh -huh. that spouses should bring out, as you are evidently also bringing out the best masculinity uh, in, in, in Dax, uh, he must be bringing out elements of femininity in you. Has he awakened different areas of self-concept that you formerly didn't have within you? Yes. So I, prior to Dax, I suppose I would identify most of my relationships at, I, I thought I was an alpha female. Um, and I am sometimes, but I'm a chameleon. I can be a beta female. I, I prided myself because I was uh, a go-getter who wanted to be an actress. I was very small. I had the voice of a child. Whenever I go to the grocery store, someone says, thank you, honey. Thank you, sweetie. I never liked being small. And I made it my mission to be seen and heard by being forceful. I mm -hmm. guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was always trying to be an alpha female. And when I met my husband, on my pr previous relationships, it wasn't like my boyfriend, I was driving the car, right? My boyfriend wasn't even in the front seat with me. He was in the trunk. That's how the relationships operated. Gotcha. And I, I recognized how uh, demeaning that was to them, but also how unhealthy that was for me because I, if, if I'm giving you my greatest admittance, I'm not fully comfortable being an alpha. I was compensating 
because mm-hmm. I want to be heard because I think I can contribute to things. And I wasn't being heard because I was always looked at because I looked 10 years younger than I was wherever I was. Yes. So I, I had all these compensation techniques. And when I met my husband, he's so much more alpha than me. He laid down the law a couple times in a way that was great. He challenged me more than any other man I've ever dated challenged me. And part of me was a little uh, slack-jawed, like, I can't believe you just said that to me. You're asking me to explain myself? And he's like, (laughs) yeah, the rules are the same for you. You explain yourself just like I explained myself. And it just created this wonderful ping-pong match. Um, And now I'm able to rely on him in a much more feminine way than I have in any other relationship. Um, I ask him for a ton of advice, but there is that secret little uh, trained alpha female inside me that I can let out when mm. he's out of line. And it's it's just the greatest ping pong match between us where if he's out of line when he says something, I'll go, oh, you're comically incorrect. <laughs> and and I just and just look at him and it's not an argument. Yeah. It's a statement of fact, but we respect each other. So it's a strange relationship. I don't it's hard to explain. It just works, I will say that. What is it about adaptions to families? Now in, in your husband's case, as you've indicated, he was raised by his mother. Um I don't know if his stepdaddy or real daddy was around, but uh he also had to get to know your family as well, your your two immediate sisters and endless cousins from the sounds of it. Uh, how did you adapt to each other's family and what advice do you have for couples that might be facing that? I mean, look, it's never going to be perfect, but you have to start much like the Purple People book says, in a place of sameness. If you, when we, we are lucky that most of our family members are pretty easy to deal with. But there are the same situations with in-laws that everyone else deals with in our family. And I won't go into specifics, but they exist. And every time I have one or he has one, we try to remember this person contributed to giving me Dax. This person contributed to giving me Kristen, to making Kristen who she is, to making Dax who he is. So I have to start from a place of being thankful, right? That's number one. Yes, and number two, you have to decide. I mean, this is a great roadmap for dealing with in-laws. Number, that's the first one, thankfulness. Number two, decide who you're going to be. Are you going to be the person who snaps at your in-laws? Is that a cool character trait, do you think? Mm. Like, are you know, you just have to really start with uh, how would someone identify you on paper? Oh, he's a great guy, but he's super rude to his in-laws and, you know, he's a jerk to his in-laws. Well, that's gross. Don't do that. So take, erase that from the paper. Strive to do your work before they come. And then when they come in town, you, you deal with it to the best of your ability. And if you need to take a break, you do. And again, this is like this, I'm saying this in the extremes. uh, But that I think is how you handle in-laws, to be honest. You have spoken about the fact that you are uh, small in in height and uh, you are perpetually being perceived as being younger than you are. But you've also indicated elsewhere that you've enjoyed the idea of getting older. For instance, the idea of turning 40 was not necessarily a crisis for you or 41. As you get older, are you comfortable with the concept of even getting older? Now, for actresses, obviously, that can be sometimes threatening – uh, justifiably uh, from the actress's point of view. Um, I don't think certainly that won't be a case for you. I, I recently interviewed Carol Burnett. Obviously, she is a, a lady in mature years. Um, are you enjoying getting older? I guess is what I'm really asking you. A hundred percent. And it's because I have committed to having a growth mindset for the last 20 years of my life. You know, you either have a fixed mindset where you decide you've learned everything you can learn and you just operate Mm. in the world, Mm. or you have a growth mindset where you take things in and you evolve. And, you know, earlier on when I was in my 20s, I was playing a teenager and I was just desperate to be respected because I had all these feisty opinions. And um, then that slowly withered away as I gained the self-confidence within my relationship and a lot of things Dax taught me. And... Um, learned how to sort of present myself in the community, whether it's uh, who I am as as an actress or an activist or on social media, what my voice is. Mm-hmm. I learned that that uh, esteemable uh, self-esteem only comes from esteemable acts. 
So if I want to have any sense of self-esteem, I got to get off my butt and do something. Esteemable acts are the only way to receive self-esteem. Otherwise, it's just all extrinsic self-esteem and you need intrinsic self-esteem. So by gathering all of that data, I guess, and understanding it, I realized, oh, in my 30s, I'm I'm quite confident because of these actions I've taken and what I've applied. And now that I'm turning 40 this year, I don't feel like I'm unheard. I don't feel like I'm too small. Uh, I don't feel like people treat me like a child. Um, so yeah, I don't mind at all the fact that I'm turning 40. I also have a, a, a vast respect for, you know, the Lion King, the circle of life. Yes. I really have an intense respect for that. It's not my turn to be, to look great in a bikini and, you know, be the star of the party anymore. It's not my turn. My daughters are going to have that turn soon. Like my turn right now is to be the host and the mom and to see what people need in a nurturing way. Like everybody gets a turn at something, right? And I just think like, it's not my turn to do the things that people in their 20s are doing. Even though that, you know, that does provide you a boost of self-esteem when you take a great selfie and post it and people like it. You're like, ooh, I feel good about myself sure, today. Sure, sure. I now recognize that as extrinsic motivation and extrinsic self-esteem that I that I don't value as much as the intrinsic stuff. I also can think fondly on the fact when I was 25 and felt super hot or whatever you want to describe your 20s as, um, or super limber and my bones didn't hurt. But now it's my turn to experience this, 40, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've never been here before. I've never, one thing that Dax's mom says all the time that I think is the cutest when the girls would be little and they would be crying, she would look at, you know, uh, my three-year-old and, and, and she would say, oh, Lincoln, I know. It's hard to be three, isn't it? You've never <laughs> been three before. You've never been three. It's the first time you've been three. And my girls would go, yeah. And it just made them feel seen. And I've never been 40 before, but I'm looking forward to understanding what that feels like because I had my turns at the younger stuff. I think one of the best examples we have of actresses, and I spoke to her years ago, it's been decades actually, uh, was Jane Fonda. Uh, I mean, obviously she looks exquisitely wonderful, but she's she's never denied her age and she's kind of embraced whatever phase she's at uh, in her age, uh, going through, transcending through the decades. And there's something very reputable and delightful about that. Um, let me just ask you, you talked about death and you have spoken elsewhere about, <laughs> it's a very amusing uh, tender moment where evidently Papa uh, was um, dying. Oh, Lord. Yep. Yeah. And mm -hmm. and your little girl uh, said, mm -hmm. you know, and you said, Papa's going to die. And your little girl evidently ran into another room and she got a little spade or, or shovel. And tell mm -hmm. the audience what happened. I, I find this delightful, this story. Well, this is, you know, the story is evidence of the practical thinking that Dax is passing down to my daughters. You know, I work on the emotional stuff. He's Captain Practical. And I have never been more tickled and amused when she did this. So um, Dax's stepfather uh, had had just was passing away like this week or something, like in the week, within mm. the week. And I said to my daughter, you know, um, Papa is only has a couple days left. And she said, oh, are we going to drive up to see him? Am I going to come? And I said, yeah, yeah, we will. And she said, okay, okay, okay. And I could tell she was thinking in the back. Yes, and she yes. was, uh, she was, you know, four, four at the time. And I said, yeah, you, you want to go, right? And she said, yeah. I, uh, should I bring my shovel? Because I have a shovel. Uh, and I said, why, why do you want to bring a shovel? And she said, well, to bury him. Where do we do it? Can we do it in the backyard? <laughs> and she was so... Um, on top of An what needed to be done next in her family and how she could contribute. And she yes. wasn't, you know, there's plenty of time when given to process emotion. At that moment, she was ready to be practical. Yes. And she said, well, what do we do with the body? Can we bury it in the backyard? And then it obviously spawned a very funny conversation about the helpers, which is what we call sort of the government of the community or police or firemen, we say they're the helpers. I said, well, the helpers legally won't let us bury Papa in the backyard. So there will be a place that he will go. And I actually think he's going to be cremated. And then we talked about cremation and what 
grandma was going to do with his ashes. But I mean, it makes perfect it sense because we bury pets in the backyard. I mean, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And she just wanted to bring her gardening kit up there and yeah. lend a hand. Yeah. Why the heck not? Well, you know, among Native Americans, I mean, they, they would bury their equivalent of poppers uh, with the children present and they would help, you know. So it's uh, it's it's completely sensible and in, 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 in contact that she would think like that. Per- perfectly reasonable. I agree. I also think there's a there's a there's a, something we don't identify. And I'm, I'm probably going to miss cite this, but I think it came from when Dax was reading a book called On Killing. Mm hmm. That maybe there was a chapter in it about that he found so uh, interesting about, you know, what could contribute to the immense amount of fear of death that, you know, younger people have and just that we all sort of have is because we don't see it anymore. Yes. You know, 50 or 100 years ago, you lived in a, a studio apartment and and to be blunt, you heard your parents having sex when they had sex at five, when you were five years old. Yep. You saw your grandmother die in that apartment. You saw her body. Yep. You helped carry the body down the stairs. Like we were witness right. to so many other yeah, We've sanitized everything. Things. Yeah. Yes, we've sanitized everything. And I think when you take things away, it's the same. It, it just creates this mystery around it. And, it's, and, and then people either have a fear or they chase it. Kristen Bell, you exude kindness and understanding and uh, a high degree of empathy for all manner of people and persons. I want to ask you, uh, not necessarily speaking in terms of death, but let's suppose you were going to take a long journey far, far away and not come back for a number of years. What individual gifts of character and personality would you want to leave for your daughters? Oh, wow. Um, personal integrity would be number one. Um, and that's because I do believe there is an innate kindness in everyone. Mm. I think it can be suffocated by events in your life, but I believe it's there. Um, personal integrity, um, critical thinking, and... You know, I don't even care if it comes from them becoming empaths like me mm-hmm. or them becoming um, anthropologists like Dax, but an understanding that the data tells us if you are kind to others, everyone is happier and mm. happiness is a better emotion than sadness. Absolutely. And let me extend the question a little bit further with Dax. If you're going to go away for a long time and then come back, what would you want to leave with Dax? If I were going away, what would I want to leave with Dax? Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> the, uh, this is where I would leave him with my empathy because he balances me with critical thinking and I balance him with non-knee-jerk reactions and empathy. Um, there, I have... How do I say this? You know, when the, the the theologian and the atheist are arguing, they'll never come to a conclusion because they're they're arguing for two different things. They're having two different arguments. Dax and I are somewhat similar as he's arguing um, practicality and I'm arguing empathy. Mm. Uh, so mm. I would leave him with the whole of my empathy so that it would balance his arguments in every way, shape or form, because I think both sides are very important. We're both on the home front and the neighborhood front and societal front and community front and on the national and international front. You bring a lot of joy. One of your latest ventures, of course, is Central Park. What have you enjoyed most about this new animated series? Oh, I, we do not have enough time in this interview to go through everything I enjoy, to be honest. Okay. Let me start by telling you how it came to be. I got a call from Josh Gad, who's one of my dearest friends and worked with him on Frozen for 10 years. The phone call went like this. Hello. Oh, hey, Kristen, it's Josh. Hey, Josh. Hey, Kristen, do you want to do an animated show with me? Yeah, sure. That sounds great. Okay, bye. That was <laughs> that was exactly how the attachment went. I, I didn't it. hear from him for a year. <laughs> and then he calls a year later and says, I've asked all of our friends to do a show with us and a couple people we've just really wanted to work with. And here's who's on the hook for this show. Stanley Tucci, David Diggs, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., you, me, and Titus Burgess. 
And I thought my head was going to explode because a lot of those people I'm friendly with, but some of them like Titus, I didn't know, but I have been desperate to sing with Titus forever because he has the voice of an angel. So Josh went to Lauren Bouchard and Nora, who created uh, Bob's Burgers, and said, I think this show is about a family in Central Park, and it's a very real family, and they're not cliches. And I will tell you that that bleeds into my character, Molly, who's this 13-year-old girl who, she's not rebellious. She doesn't hate her family. She's um, not an anarchist. She's just, she's just an adolescent girl who's really socially awkward, but she draws comic books and has this big, beautiful world in her head that she can only draw and she can only be confident in this world of comic books. Um, And then the sort of bad guy character is played by Stanley Tucci. Um, They live in Central Park and their father, who's played by Leslie Odom Jr., is the manager of the park. And uh, the sort of big bad wolf in the story is that these real estate developers are trying to take over the park. But the music in this show is so funny and so great. And we have um, Kate and Alyssa, our weekly music writers who write fantastic music, but every week we have a guest writer. So we've had Amy Mann, uh, Megan Trainer, Sarah Bareilles, um, Fiona Apple, all these guest writers come in. And the music is really what shines about the show. This show is sort of pure joy. And there's, by the way, a ton of colors. The family is biracial, which just seemed obvious since we were trying to represent everyone who we were friends with and was cast. And Mm -hmm. it's just a a show about joy. It's just what I think the world needs right now. It sure does. I have to tell you, Kristen Bell, you have sincerely brought a lot of joy to me today and to everyone who's heard this broadcast. I've been grinning, you know, like a Cheshire cat from side to side, not with menacing intent, I might add, (laughs) but just uh, with delight. You are kind, you're sweet, you're loving, you're sincere, you're generous, you're honest, openly acknowledging of your own frailty at times, which is so strengthening for everyone. Kristen Bell, thank you so much for being a part of Watching America. I can't thank you enough for being real. Thank you so, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Thank you. Take care. God bless. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.